welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. Well, it's good to be back with you guys. Back in 20s, uh, fall has arrived, winter is coming quickly behind it. <laughs> I always forget about that. So it makes me just all the more thankful for these precious couple of weeks that we have, <laughs> especially in Rockford. You have to count your blessings. So enjoy it now. Wear your flannels. I'm seeing them come out. I put mine on. So we're all here. If you don't have one, get one. It's all the rave. It'll be good. But uh, if we haven't met, my name's Alex. I get to help oversee the ministry here. And I also have the privilege of opening up God's Word tonight. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This evening we get to uh, look at a very familiar moment in the life of Christ. It's probably one you've heard of before, and it's the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And so you've probably heard about this. Uh, some, you know, you might call it Palm Sunday. If you're in kids' ministry, like, immediately my mind goes to palms. Uh, the, even, like, just recently, Matthew and I were cleaning out some kids' stuff, and sure enough, we found a bunch of palm branches. So that's kind of the story we're going into tonight. But at its heart, uh, this really is a story about a king. This is a story about a king tonight. And uh, if you've ever met me before or gotten to know me, then you know uh, I think kings are kind of awesome. Especially if you're a boy, you're growing up, you think of knights and kings and all these good things. And I feel like I haven't quite lost that. I think you have great kings in history. You have like men like Charlemagne or even Alexander the Great. He's got a good name, if I do say so. But uh, those were men who transformed the world through just sheer power of will. Like, that's incredible. Men who took charge and literally transformed the world. And so you have those kinds of men in history, but then you look maybe at like fiction and fantasy and you have guys like Aragorn. And when it came time, he cast off the ranger, and he became the king that he was meant to be, right? And he, he took on the crown, he ascended to the throne, and he defeated evil. And so both in history and fiction, you have all these awesome examples of what a king should be. But I'm here to tell you that there's none that really compare to the one that you find in this book. Jesus is the greatest king. And after raising Lazarus from the dead and being anointed by Mary... He is now headed back to his city, the city of Jerusalem. And this is going to mark the beginning of something we call Passion Week or Holy Week. It's the last week of Christ's life. And Luke was teaching uh, for us last Thursday, and he even mentioned this. Like, we're halfway through the book of John, but there's only one week of his life left. And so it's been like kind of the broad brush view of Christ and these amazing miracles, and then it's going to slow way down to focus on this one week. And it all starts here. And it's the last week of Christ's life before the crucifixion. And as Jesus finally arrives at the city, what we're going to see is that the people are going to erupt in praise. Like the house, the, the, the ceiling is just going to get blown off. And so you may not know this. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. But as I looked into it, one of the things I found super awesome is that scholars estimate there was over two and a half million people in attendance at the Passover feast for this uh, time of Christ's life. And so I'm uh, not much for numbers, but I was like, okay, I'm going to mess around with this and see what that turns out to. And uh, just for your context, this would be 30, 
Yep, 30 exact uh, Chiefs Arrowhead stadiums, completely full. And uh, for those of you who don't know Chiefs, that's 80,000 people 30 times over. For those of you here, if you've ever been to Wrigley, it's 66 Wrigleys put together. And so just imagine, I just want to put that before you. This is an absurd amount of people, and we don't know necessarily if all of them are there for this, but we know it's going to be tons of them, and they gather together on the streets, and they all sing this song of praise to their king. And yet here's the issue. They were worshiping Jesus for the wrong reason. What you find in this passage is that all these people are going to worship Jesus, and he's certainly worthy of their praise, and it was right for them to sing to him, uh, but none of the Jews actually understand who or what he is. And so they ended up praising him because of their kind of false expectations rather than the truth. And the reason why this happens is because of the Roman occupation. In Israel, Rome had been there for a long time. And so they had kind of let the culture and their immediate need to bleed into their view of what the Messiah would look like. And so when Jesus came, their view was so jaded that they couldn't truly know who he was. And so if you're wondering, this is why... Uh, They can be singing Hosanna here, Hosanna in the highest, and then only three or four days later say crucify him, right? And that's kind of the tension here. In this text, it's like, okay, these people are singing like praises, they're like flipping out, they love Jesus, but in a couple of days they're going to kill him. So how does that happen? Well, let me tell you, it's because they had misguided worship. They had misguided worship, and it led them to hate and reject their king. And I really think that's worth noting for us uh, just here today, since there seems to be something very similar that is taking place in our context. Guys, I see this happening too often, I think, in the church and even in our own lives, that we end up worshiping this idea of Jesus who actually doesn't exist. And you can kind of look around all over the place and say, yeah, they're not worshiping a real Jesus. They're not worshiping a real Jesus. But it's even in our own hearts. It's in my heart. We kind of build up a false idea of who Jesus is. And, uh, you know, if you look outside of the church, usually it's like the fuzzy wuzzy Jesus. He's there just to make you feel better. But then even in our own hearts, it just becomes, well, there's this guy. I believe in him and I pray for him, but, you know, pray to him. But it's all for me, right? And we, we kind of conform Jesus to our own ideas, but you want to know what the problem with that is, is that a false Jesus can't save you. A, a Jesus that's been pieced together by culture or by our feelings, if we, if we try to worship that, if we try to sing to that, and we're not singing to the true Christ, then it's going to cause us, just like the Jews, as we'll see, to hate and despise our king. And so I know that's a kind of a tangent to start out with, um, but we, we have to recognize there's only one true king. He's the only one who can save us, and we we need to know him as he truly is, not as we would imagine him. And so uh, the way we do that, if you were to ask me, you're like, well, okay, that's great. We need to know true Jesus. How do we do that? Well, you got to let him define himself. (laughs) Let him tell you who he is, and that happens here in his word. And so that's what I want to do tonight. We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 26, but as we look at it, I want you to be asking that question, uh, what is this king? Who is this king? And that's going to be my title. And so as we look at this passage, I want to unpack the sort of king that Jesus claims to be. 
with the goal that we would worship him appropriately and be encouraged because he's a king who's way better than the one we would imagine. So with that in mind, I'm going to read for us, starting verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And it says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he, raised, or when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining nothing, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and he told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. What is this king? What is this king? What does Christ reveal about himself in this passage? Well, the first thing I would say, and this is my first point, is that he is a humble king. Jesus is a very humble king. And I love how he decides to enter the city of Jerusalem. So I'm going back to the very beginning of the passage. It's really, uh, if you're like me, you, you hear about this, there's a huge crowd. You're thinking Jesus wants to walk into his city displaying his power, his prestige, showing them I've got this. And that's kind of what they're expecting too, but that's not what happens at all. And again, there's like two and a half million people in the city. So this would have been an electric moment. If you've ever been to like a sporting event, it's like the most you've ever seen is probably at best 50,000 people screaming and shouting. So just blow that way up. They're all shouting Hosanna. It would have been so easy to just seize the moment, but Jesus doesn't try to stoke the fire. He doesn't build the hype up. Instead, he enters the city with humility, and he does it while riding a donkey. And as John's kind of describing this, he says that there's a large crowd that comes out to meet him, and again, they pull up these palm branches, and that's in verse 13. And I'll just note quickly on this that the reason why they took up palm branches, it wasn't just because they're the only thing there, but it was because they were a symbol of just Jewish identity. Uh, during the revolutions that had happened just a, a couple generations before with the Maccabees, they had printed coins with palm branches on them, and that was like their sign of rebellion. And so even though the Romans like crushed them all, they kept those coins as a sign of our nation, of revolution. And so you can almost sense this, this feeling, this emotion building up that, okay, Jesus is coming. Let's get the palm branches out. Let's talk about revolution. Like it's almost like French Revolution-esque. Like let's get ready to overthrow the establishment here. 
They thought Christ was going to do that for them. They thought he was that kind of Messiah, and they're, they're, they're hyping it up. They're singing their songs. And as it's happening, you have to be wondering. They're, like, they're all just like, okay, what's Jesus going to do? Like when he shows up, we've built up this awesome crowd for him. What's it going to look like? But then he finally shows up, and he, he deflates the moment. Like he doesn't come in like Aladdin. <laughs> He's not like trumpeting himself on the elephant, Prince Ali, all of that. No, he comes in on a donkey. And so you kind of have to imagine the equivalent. Jesus doesn't pull up in like a Corvette or a Ferrari. He pulls up in a Prius. <laughs> Some people, I was like, I have to be careful with which car I choose for this. But Prius, you know, like he chooses the most basic of animal. The most basic thing you could find. He pulls up in it and he enters the city and shows us his heart of humility. And part of it's to correct their error. We're going to see that it's also to fulfill prophecy. But part of this is to show them you're wrong. Like, I'm not that guy. I'm not the one who's coming in to, to overthrow everyone. In fact, I'm doing something so much greater. And even in this, you can see that he's the kind of king who's humble. He loves them, and he wants them to even see that they're mistaken. And I think this is the same kind of king that Paul describes later on in Philippians chapter 2. And he says, have this mind among yourselves. And he's talking about a mind of humility, He says, it's yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, friends, Jesus Christ reveals himself to us as a very humble king, just even the way he enters the city. He doesn't present himself with spectacle. He's not boasting. And the question I would ask is, can the same be said of us? If we're looking at Christ, we're saying, who is this king? And we believe that this is truly who he is. He he walks in humility. Are we emulating that in our own lives? So are we the kind of people who walk into the room and it's like, look at me. I'm going to try and dress a certain way. I'm going to try and draw attention. I'm going to be bombastic. Uh, Some of you are like, well, Alex, that's you. And Maybe. Some of us are wired that way, louder than life, you know, like you're just going to be loud. But is it about you or is it about representing Christ? Because that's the difference between the two. And all of us, again, we all have to confront that in our own hearts. When I'm interacting with someone, when I'm walking into a room, who am I choosing to represent right now? Is it that I want to show people how amazing my Savior is and how good of a king he is? by living in the same way he did, or is it about me? (laughs) And I'll confess, like, sometimes I go between the two. I was convicted. I was, like, studying this. Even this morning, I got invited to go and speak at a middle school. And I showed up, and there's, like, 35, 40 middle schoolers, like, sitting there, and they're all, like, they have, like, Nike shoes and, like, really athletic clothing. And I'm sitting there, like, okay, are they going to think I look good, you know? And all of a sudden, I'm, like, trying to think, do I have to include certain illustrations? Like, do I have to, I'm trying to connect with them. And I just stopped myself. I'm literally in the middle of teaching them. And I kind of like just paused. And I thought to myself, I'm like, these are middle schoolers. Why would you ever care what they thought of you? And I was like, I just had this like recognition in my mind. Why am I so obsessed with this right now? And why am I not caring more about them hearing the gospel like they asked me to do? That's why I was there. And so here I am like convicted. I'm like middle schoolers, like of all people to care like their opinion of you. But that's all of us, isn't it? 
We all get just sucked into that idea of what they're going to think about me. And here you see Jesus, and everyone's already hyping him up, and he could have easily stepped into it and been like, yeah, I'm him. And he doesn't. He comes in on a donkey and with humility. And that's where it needs to start with us, with humble hearts. And so we need to be just very aware. I think this is how it happens. We become more aware of how awesome and good our God is and how lowly we are and how much we had to be forgiven And then we become very intentional about how we present ourselves to others. Not because we're trying to be manipulative, but instead because we're saying, okay, everything I do, how I dress, how I interact, I want it to point them towards Christ. I want it to represent the king well. It starts with humility. But it's not going to end there because Jesus is not only a humble king, he's also the prophesied king. This is my second point. Jesus is a prophesied king. And that is, I mean, he's, he's the one who was foretold. And if you look back with me at verse 13 one more time, it says that the people picked up their palm branches and they're singing to him. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. In verse 14, it goes on to say that Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming and sitting on a donkey's colt. And what's really important about those two verses is that in them, you actually have two quotations from the prophets and from the Old Testament. This is really key. The first one that you would find is when they're singing and they're saying, Hosanna. They're not just making that up on the spot. It's actually from the Psalms, Psalm 118. And this specific passage was part of what they called the halal. And it's what they would sing to each other every time there was a tabernacle feast. And what was so key about it is it was always intended to point them towards the Messiah. And so the Jews are singing to Christ, Hosanna, blessed, be the, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And they're, it's so tragic because they're saying, yes, we believe you're the Messiah, but it's the wrong Messiah. They believe in the Messiah, but they have the wrong idea of who it is. But all the same, John's point here for us is they're, they're drawing from the Old Testament to shape who they understand Christ to be. And in case we don't get that, John just goes and he puts another quote in. He says, Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That comes straight out of Zechariah. And the reason why I note that both of these are prophecies pointing to Christ is because for us, I think it's important to understand that the Old Testament is only pointed towards Christ. And so this can kind of seem like a minute point, but I I had to stop here and mention it because there are those, even in the church today, who would say the best thing that we could do right now is unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and we just leave it behind because there's some really hard things it teaches. You see a lot of people dying in it. We're not really cool with that. We should just have the nice Jesus that we find in the New Testament. But we can't do that. We simply cannot do that because the whole entire point of the Old Testament was to tell the story of a king. And if I were to take you back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, the very first time sin enters the world, God promises to Eden this amazing promise. He says to her, you are going to have an offspring, and through him someday he is going to crush the head of the snake, which is Satan, and his heel is going to be bruised. And it's this thing that becomes the very first promise of Christ. But then as you go throughout the rest of the Bible, you see that more and more light is brought to the picture through the different covenants that God made with with Abraham and then with Moses and then especially with David. 
And that's the one I want to, to bring to light here. Because to David, God promised him specifically a king from his own line who would reign forever. And this happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says to David after he's like, God, I want to build you a house. God says, no, but I'm going to bless you. Instead, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. So David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so you see part of that promise gets fulfilled in Solomon but then there's a second part that is so glorious, and it is that God will establish the throne of this kingdom forever. And so God's talking about a promise with an eternal kingdom, and to have that, you have to have an eternal king. And when we come to the New Testament, we find it's Jesus. The entire Bible it culminates in Jesus Christ. And that means for us that it's beneficial to go to the Old Testament. Christ didn't come to get rid of it. He came to fulfill it. And so that's why, you know, even if you come here, like we don't have, imagine a Bible that's about half that thick. We don't have Bibles that have been, you know, like we've just cut out the Old Testament. No, we keep it, we study it, we read it, we preach on it because it's beneficial. It's the preamble, it's pointing us all towards Christ. And so we can't get rid of it. And again, I, I think that can seem kind of minute, but it is important because that's being attacked today. People are saying that needs to go. And, and God says, no. Clearly, Jesus himself loves the Old Testament. And so we need to cultivate that same love in our own lives. Mix it up. Read both. Spend time in both. Like, can you imagine a world without Psalms? It's like all of our devotional lives would just tank immediately. We need it. God's used, given it to us as a gift. And it's to show us that Jesus Christ is a very much so a prophesied king. Now, that brings me to my third point. I'm moving through him because I have four tonight. But uh, point number three is that he's the universal king. So Christ, he's humble. He's been prophesied. But he's also universal. <laughs> and of all the expectations that Jesus is going to shatter, I think this is one of the major ones for the Jewish people because even the apostles, his own disciples, are going to get blindsided with this one. Uh, but Jesus, in his mission, he came not only to save Israel, but to save people from all nations and from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we see this come out in verses 17 through 19, really verse 19. It talks about how the crowd had come and they, they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus. And so they're the ones building up the hype. They're why everyone's there. And it says that the Pharisees are just, you know, standing kind of far off. They're kind of talking to each other, watching this whole thing go by. And what is it they say? They they say, well, you see that you are gaining nothing. <laughs> Look, the world has gone after him. It's like, well, we, we, we tried our best. And really, this is, it's a pretty funny passage. Like, I feel like John included this with a hint of irony because what they're saying, they're obviously exaggerating to each other. Look, all of Jerusalem's following him. We didn't want them to, but they are. The whole world's going after him. But even though they're not really meaning the whole world, the truth is, what's going to happen? The whole world's going to go after Jesus. And so they're speaking truth even though they don't mean it that way. Isn't it awesome how God sometimes does that? He takes an enemy of the kingdom and he uses them to speak truth. <laughs> it's like you were fighting so hard to shut Jesus down and yet you cannot help but proclaim exactly what's going to happen. The whole world's going to go after Jesus. And what's so amazing about that for us is it means that we get to be included. 
It means that we get to be included in this amazing mission that Christ accomplished. Because after the death and resurrection of Christ, the apostles would go on to carry the gospel to the entire world. Think about that. All the missionary journeys that would happen, they would take the gospel to the farthest ends of the known world, to races of all kinds, not just Jews. It would go beyond that. And then that would extend so far that even today, the mission is still being advanced by people who want to bring the good news to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And I just want you guys to think about how incredible that is. Just for a second. I, even as I was sitting down to study this, I was like, man, we blow by this too often. But there was a guy, a, a carpenter from Nazareth. Literally, they would say, what, th- what good thing can come from Nazareth? Well, Jesus. Because some guy 2,000 years ago started a movement that has not stopped For the entirety of the 2,000 years, there have been kingdoms that have risen and fallen in that time. There have been nations that have boasted about how they destroyed Christianity. They are no longer with us, and yet Christ remains. And right now, what's incredible is they say that a third of the known world proclaims to be a Christian. Now, are some of those nominal? Yes, but isn't it amazing how God equips his people to send out the message to the entire world? He's a universal king. He wasn't content with just Israel. That's where he started, but the plan was so much better because it includes us. Even as I was teaching the kids today, I was like, well, how many of you are from Israel? I was like, wow, can I even ask that right now? That's a hot topic in itself. But I asked it, and none of them raised their hands. I was like, well, guess what? You should be thankful. We should be thankful. God had chosen a people to be his own, and then in his mercy, he expanded it to all of us. Otherwise, none of us would be in. None of us would be getting into the kingdom. None of us would be brought in to be citizens under Christ. But God is good. And he's a universal king. And and my point for that would be that it should really stir a fire in our hearts to go tell the people about how good Jesus is. If we've been blessed in this way to be brought in, saved from condemnation and judgment, even though we weren't part of Israel, And what's stopping us from telling the people we know and the people we love? Obviously, our hearts should be stirred up to want them to know the same good king that we have come to know. And I feel like that needs to happen locally and globally to just catch a fire for that. I was even thinking of 20s. There are opportunities, even in Rockford, where we could be pressing into that. I mean, this age group, we are the people who have the most time. Unless you're one of the few that is married and has kids already. uh, You have time. And what would it look like for you to spend that time, just even a sum of it, going out and telling other people about Jesus? Pouring into even some of our our local missions, even here in Rockford, we're partnered with amazing groups. I get to help connect with them, some of them Rock House Kids. I know some of you have been there. I think of even Youth for Christ, these programs where they're taking people who are so broken and saying, we want to tell you about Jesus. And the crazy thing is those kids are so hungry for it. And they will definitely receive it if you are faithful to push in. But the truth is that Jesus is not just an Israeli king. He's not just an American king. He is the king of all. It's universal. And so we need to share the good news. Amen? Yeah, that one, I'm praying that the Lord stirs that up in all of us. But it brings me to my final point, which is this. This is where I want to land it. Um, Christ is the universal king. Um, But finally, he's also our sacrificial king. He's our sacrificial king. And I take this from the last six verses of the passage. 
uh, starting in verse 20, you see that there are, at the feast, uh, there's just some of these Greeks, and it kind of reemphasizes my last point, because now they're saying, we want to come and know Jesus, and they start playing telephone with Philip, and, and Philip goes and tells Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus, and they kind of go through this whole thing, all to gain an audience. And then when Jesus responds, I really struggled with this at first when I was studying. I was like, well, it just seems like Jesus blew them off. <laughs> like he just goes into this whole exposition. He doesn't address them. But as I looked even just a little bit under the surface, what I realized was that he was answering their requests in a way that's so much greater than they could have imagined. They wanted to see Jesus, and he's going to come back and say, you will, but not till I've done my work. And then you're going to see me in a way that no one else has been able to see me yet. And what's so incredible is that for the entire book of John up to this point, Jesus has said the words, not yet. He's always said, not yet. His disciples have asked him many times, like, when is the kingdom coming? Is your time now? And he's always said, not yet, not yet, not yet. And this is the first time, if you look with me at verse 23, Jesus hears the Greeks want to see him and he answers and says, the hour has come. Let me put that in other words. He says, now. It's been not yet, not yet, not yet. And he says, no more. It's now. The kingdom is at hand. It is here. And what he's talking about here in these three or four verses that follow is the entire mission. It's a summary of the gospel. His entire life's work, which is to save a dying and broken world from its sin by laying down his own life as the substitutionary sacrifice. It's that plain and simple. And he's going to say this to them through an incredible illustration. And I love this. He says, the hour has come. It's now. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when he says that, glorified, what he means, it's time for me to die, be buried, raise again, and be ascended to heaven and send the Spirit. To be glorified is for him to be with his Father in heaven. He's saying it's, it's near. It's time. And he follows it up. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus has the best illustrations. There's a lot to learn from him. He's a great storyteller. But he's going to just use a very simple one here. And he's going to talk about a grain of wheat. And he's going to, these are all fishermen, farmers. They're going to connect with this. And what he's going to tell them is, you know, when you take a seed, what you have to do is you, you kind of make a line in the dirt or you dig a hole and you throw it in there and you cover it up. Once that happens, the seed dies. The seed dies in the ground, and then from it shoots up the harvest of wheat and the life. And he was telling them this as a picture of what he would have to go through to save them. He's saying, I am the grain. I am going to hang on the cross and die and be buried. And then through that death, there is going to be life. It's an incredible, incredible illustration and a beautiful truth. And as I was studying it, I found um, that a man named John Gill, he was really helpful in just pulling out the beauty of it. And so I, I just wanted to end by reading his words on how he describes this illustration. And he says this, Christ here teaches us by this simile that if he had not died, he should have been alone, not without his Father and the Blessed Spirit, nor without the holy and elect angels, but without any of the sons of men who all fell and died in Adam, and had not Christ died, none of them would have lived. None of them could have been justified, nor could their sins have been expiated. 
nor would any of them be regenerated. Christ must have been without them in heaven. Therefore, he chose rather to die for them that they might be forever with him than be alone in the human nature. And what I love so much about that, it's kind of like, he's got a little bit of the old English to him, which makes it cooler. But as you're studying, what he does, he just draws out the heart of Christ in the gospel. And he says, essentially to us, that our king was not willing that we should be absent from his kingdom and from his glory. Not because he needs us in any way or because he needs us to to think something of him or to worship him, but purely because of the overflow of his love. He laid down his life. He was the seed. He was buried. He was planted. And then through it, we get brought in. And he sacrificed himself. He's unlike any other king. He lays down his own life. And surely there are other kings who have done that, but he's the only one who's taken it back up. And he didn't stay dead. He conquered the grave. And he saved the very same people who had rebelled against him. So think about that. We were the ones who rebelled against Christ. I was the one who rebelled against Christ. And yet Jesus said, I am going to die so that Duncan gets to be with me. Or you, any of us who believe in him. That's amazing that Christ would come down and do that for us. Such a beautiful truth here. And again, nobody here is realizing what he's talking about. So can you imagine just being Christ in this moment? You're describing to the people that you love so much that you're about to suffer beyond anything else. And all you say is the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And you're not even saying it because they're going to get it in the moment, but you're saying that so they would look back one day when they have the Holy Spirit and say, wow, our God is so good that he would do that for me. And immediately after that, he goes on to say that this isn't a love that leaves us unchanged. It transforms us. We see that in the last couple of verses. He says then, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, yes, I'm going to die and it's going to bring life, but not for everyone. Only for those who are willing to lose their life for me. Only for those who are willing to place faith in me. Because that's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It means you're dying to yourself every day. (laughs) I'll never forget talking to my dad. It's so random, just popped into my head. But he was telling me about when he asked uh, my grandfather for permission to marry my mom. He's like, I was like, Dad, were you nervous about it? And he was just kind of telling me. He's like, no, not really. But he said, there's one thing I've never forgotten. I sat down and, you know, I looked at your grandpa in the eyes and I said, you know, I'd like to marry your daughter. He said, okay, well, John, do you love her? I said, yeah, I love her. He said, all right, John. He goes, are you, re- are you willing to die for her? I said, yes, sir, I'm willing to die for her. He said, are you willing to die for her every day? Yes, sir, I am. And my dad was like, he said, yes, after that. But isn't that kind of the idea of faith for us with Christ? It's not, are you willing to die once? (laughs) We can all get to an emotional high spot and be like, yeah. (laughs) And then like two minutes later, you're devastated. No, it's the Christian faith. It is receiving and resting on Christ daily and saying, I'm going to remind myself of the Jesus, not the one the world is pushing at me, not the one my feelings are telling me exists, 
I'm going to come to his word. I'm going to remind myself who he says he is. And then I'm going to say, yes, I'm willing to pick up my cross and follow you every day. And none of us are going to do that perfectly, but that's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why we have each other to press in. And if you're here tonight and you haven't been brought into that, it might sound hard. You're like, wow, that doesn't sound great. A a faith where you're dying to yourself every day. But let me tell you, it's what we were created for. And it's through dying to yourself, just as Christ died on the cross, that we are brought to life and that we will one day be glorified and we will be brought into relationship perfectly with the Savior who made us. And that's the thing the world can't understand. They look at you, and if your life is different, you're denying yourself these things. They, they just don't know. Like, why wouldn't you just enjoy it all to the fullest now? And I just want to grab those people and say, because there's so much better coming up. There's so much better lying ahead. And it's so simple how to get into that. It's by faith in Christ. And so I would invite you, even if you're here tonight, you're like, I've never rested on the good news of Jesus. Well, it's that he, he's God. He came down. He died, he rose again, and he's coming back. Not just obscurely for the world, but for you. And that's the hard part, saying, no, you know, it's easy for me to say, you know, Jesus loves you, he died for you, but no, he loves you. (laughs) Say that to yourself, like, no, Jesus died for me. Sometimes the most profound thing you can do is remind yourself that Christ's love was not just for everyone else, but for you. And to receive that is what brings us into his kingdom, and then it changes us as we walk forward. If I were to summarize it, receiving Christ by faith, I would say that it's, it's saying, yes, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Amen? All right, would you bow your heads as we pray? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, God, it's so encouraging. It's a somber thing. And yet it's such an encouraging thing to know that you are a greater king than the one we would have come up with. You're a greater king than we could imagine. And your plans for us are greater than the plans we would make for ourselves. Lord, they're painful sometimes. But even through them, Lord, you receive glory and we are transformed and we get to know you more. I pray that truth would just rest on our own hearts, Lord, that wherever we're coming from this week again, we would set those things aside which would seek to lie to us about who you are. We would look at your word and be reminded, no, you are a humble and good king who has sacrificed himself for us and that is worthy of our devotion, worthy of our praise. And Lord, I pray that you would just stir up our hearts to worship you day by day and that it would go and just infect the rest of Rockford. Our joy, Lord, which comes through the spirit would be just catching fire in this place and more people would come to know that you love them. And so Lord, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would go before us this week. Would you protect us as we head into the weekend? Lord, would you guard us from any kind of temptation to sin? Would you fill us with joy? Would you allow our friendships to be more rich, more life-giving? Would you protect us physically? And Lord, would you help us to prioritize your word? I pray that you would do all these things in us and more. And Lord, I pray that you would do it for your glory and for the glory of your son. It's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.